Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Happy New Year to our Mockingcast listeners, but Happy New Year, especially to the two of you. I know we've we've texted back and forth a little bit, but let's hear it. How's your breaks? How's your what's the New Year like so far? We had an awesome break. It was really good. Got to see a ton of family. That was so nice. Got to spend a lot of time with our our dear friends. We did New Year's Eve with our best friends and their three boys and. We have hung out with these people since our kids were babies, like since we didn't have an Annie. Mm. And they've got three boys now who are like adult sized. And, you know, we've got two kids. And I mean, honestly, our favorite thing to do is to vacation together and go to the smallest Episcopal church we can find so we can just like increase their ASA by double. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we love to do that in the summer. Um, but what we did this time is we got a reservation at the nicest restaurant in Oxford, which is a nice restaurant and just hauled our whole crew in for New Year's Eve. And it was, it's one of those memories that I can't believe I get to treasure for forever. It was so wonderful. So, um, the only thing that was unexpected was I was like, God, this is going to be expensive, but like, you know, like we'll, Kids will order a thing that's probably twenty dollars. We'll order a thing. There'll be some drinks. It can't be that bad. We can oh yeah, it, guys. <laughs> it's a prefix menu. It's one twenty five ahead. I was like, <laughs> so we're not getting a new couch this year, guys. <laughs> Luckily, but kids don't awesome. drink. I know well, that that is that is true. Let me tell you what else they don't do: eat the raw oysters on the prefix menu that you paid for. <laughs> Marshall eats those. Marshall will eat those. Good for Marshall. So anyway, it was awesome. RJ. We had a great break also. Um, Christmas Eve was lovely. Christmas Day was lovely. On Boxing Day, my wife and I had our annual um, tradition of just staying in our pajamas and watching um, cheesy rom-coms all day, which was really fun. And then uh, Jonathan Adams and his family came in for about four days. So we had 10 people in the house, which is wild and crazy. And New Year's Eve, um, my wife had bought some fireworks at Target, but they weren't enough. So our older boys and Jonathan's kids went on an odyssey and ended up at a Walmart where they bought many, many more fireworks because it's Florida and set them off in our our driveway, which was amazing. Um, And then they all left and could keep my wife from being uh, too depressed uh, we got in the car, she and Marshall and uh, me, and we drove up to North Carolina to go skiing for like three days because Marshall had never been oh. on skis before. And that was really, really great, actually. We we had never been, really been on a trip, just the three of us, and oh. we took the dogs, and it was really bonding. And he, of course, did great on the mountain because he's fearless and pretty athletic, and it was just a really nice way to to end our time. And then... You know, not coming back and kind of uh, excited for the new year, but also um, still digging out 
a little bit, mm. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. get my, so I guess I, Sarah, so excited for you to come to Holy Aww, Trinity, West Palm I'm beach on Sunday, too. January 21st. Yeah. So if you're in our area, um, on Sunday, the 21st, come here, Sarah preach. How about you, Dave? I wish I could be there. Like, in fact, you know, you know where I'll be? I'll where be, will you uh, be? I'll be at the Sundance Film Festival. Ooh. What? Yeah. You, you guys know the, the Windrider studio that we showed a film from in New York this past year? Yes. The Beneath the Ink thing? Yeah. They invited, uh, there's sort of a, they invited me and my wife and um, Megan oh Ritchie, who works for Mockingbird, and we'll get to go out there. And, you know, it all kind of falls together at the last minute. So I, I, I believe I get to moderate a few things, but what? wow. We'll see. I don't know. Dave. It's so fun. I you know, went like, to that uh, a couple years in college. It was so fun. I'm so, always are you shred. Are you going to shred to go. DZ? Are you going to shred? I don't at all? know Will if we, we have enough enough time to shred. That is that you is what RJ's, RJ's description of my incredible snowboarding skills. But um, <laughs> uh, that we, we we these are these are this is the the terminology of former youth ministers who actually <laughs> did it together. Train. The shred train. <laughs> Um, oh shout out, uh, Taylor, Taylor Foreign. I know you're listening. Um, so, no, it was fantastic. My parents came. They were, they were only here for a few days, but um, we stayed put. And, you know, we had the moment that I think a lot of parents have had. And, RJ, maybe you haven't had this in a while. And, Sarah, I don't know if you're there yet. But we had the moment where we slept in for three straight days and, mm. and, and realized Oh my goodness! This is, hasn't happened since we had our first child. Like our last, our seven-year-old oh is he can get up and get himself a cereal, and you know the dog gets walked. And this moment that you never—it kind of creeps up on you, but yeah. for years you think it's never going to come, and you I'm worry like, that dang, you can't sleep in ever dang, again. That was a long haul. Divine for you. deliverance. <laughs> I know. Since 2010, I haven't. We haven't had that kind of. You know, you get time to sleep when you know when when for me. When my wife is like, you know, taking them or, or something yeah. else, or you're out of town. But it was it was very funny reporting that to my like younger colleagues here, and uh, they just look at you with disdain because when will that day ever come? And it comes. It it came yeah. like a thief in the night, like a thief in the night, <laughs> like the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, well, we've got some fun things to talk about today, and we're going to start with why everyone is obsessed with the kid who beat Tetris. Now, I'm not sure if you guys are Tetris players. I always I played Tetris on a Game Boy. And um, I, my, my kids have one of those little Tetris sort of like mock arcade games. And, uh, you know, f- for years, Tetris is – there was a movie, I think, made about it. There like was. A, I watched it like Netflix or Apple TV or something. Apple yeah. Plus. Yeah. It was, it was good. It was fun. It was it, – it's sort of a fun thing. And I yeah. think a lot of people do have experiences of this game. I know it's, a, it's also like a – it's a calming thing. It's like the pre candy crush, you know, angry birds, minesweeper type of, but there's a kid, there's a 13. I'll read this from, this is from wired magazine. Angela Watercutter wrote this. She writes, a 13-year-old kid has seemingly beat Tetris. Long believed impossible or a myth, the magical feat took place on December 21st and apparently shocked even the player. Willis Gibson, he's 13, he reached level 157 and launched the heretofore unseen kill screen, where the game crashes and there's nothing left to play. Oh my God, Willis says repeatedly in a video he posted of his success this week, I'm going to pass out. Now, Gibson's story, she says that normally this would be kind of a minor story, like kind of a curio, but this story has taken off. It got covered on CNN, NPR, and the New York Times. 
Interest in the game, now four decades old, Water Carter writes, isn't, I believe, what's driving the fascination with Gibson's victory. I think it's a deep desire for some kind of wonder. For a lot of people, 2023 was awful. There's not much good news to latch on to these days. Folks hoping to return to work with a new year, new me vitality are finding themselves coming up short. Dry January is trending, but most of the posts are less than enthusiastic. Example, instead of dry January, I'm doing why January. It's where every day I stand in the middle of the street and scream, (laughs) why God, why? Seeing that a kid in Oklahoma defeated the programming of a game that has caused countless people joy and frustration feels like a bomb. She goes on to say, Gibson completed his legendary run in under 40 minutes. About 38 minutes into it, he says exasperatedly, please crash, please crash. It almost feels like the motto of the past year. While no one wants things to fall apart, there's an overwhelming sense that things are tumbling too fast and it would be a relief if they stopped. Not because the worst outcome had happened, but because the struggle was over. Well, by crashing Tetris, Gibson essentially beat its coding. For the past 12 months, as artificial intelligence has infiltrated creativity and threatened jobs, the rise of the machines has never felt more real. Watching one 13-year-old with an NES controller and a lot of determination beat a computer is a win for everyone. And then, very touchingly, you find out that Willis dedicated his win to his late father, who died last month. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Got one other thing. To, he's thirteen. He Ugh. needed this. Holy do, you, do you know? Do you know about thirteen-year-old boys, Sarah? <laughs> yes, I do. It's yes, a. It's I. I love this uh, idea that we sort of all needed a win, and it kind of comes at the right time. And and this kid who's just lost his dad, and and uh, beating the machines, the whole thing strikes me as a, a nice little nugget of joy, a little Christmas gift, New Year's gift. Um. I don't know. What do you guys okay, think? Okay, well, I don't feel that way. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, 2024 is going to be awful too. I, yeah, I come on, come on. We're only a few days in. Come on, let's let's hold, let's hold out hope. Maybe it'll be a lot better. Trust me, mine is already had drama. Mine I mean, you're coming to Holy Trinity. Drama. How bad could it be? Okay. Um, kids' dads are going to die in 2024. Um. Life is going to be awful in its own way in 2024. Okay. So I want to say all that. Praise God for you, Sarah. I hate this shit when people are like, oh, this last year was so bad. It's like, when have we ever been like, damn, 2006 was awesome. Like, nobody said that in 2007. Everybody in 2007 was like, 2006 was awful. Like, it's not going to be different this year. But here's Mm. the thing. Wonder is always there, and it is a huge gift, and it is a relief from the enormity of tragedy and sadness and desperation and despair that we face regularly in our lives and Mm. that we see all over the world. And so thank God for wonder, Mm. I think, is the takeaway for me, but not like, oh, this is like (laughs) last year was so bad. I mean, that kid's year was terrible. This year for that kid who lost his dad? It's going to be really bad. Like, mm. so I don't know. I just, I get, you know, I get so frustrated with the New Year's thing of like, last year was really bad this year. I'm like, shut up. It's going <laughs> to be hard. Okay. But find some meaning in your life. 
try to remember that Jesus is going to hunt your ass down no matter how bad your year is and love you profoundly. I saw a thing. I was driving past a Methodist church the other day. And, you know, churches have those signs out, right, that they change every week. And usually they're horribly legalistic, right? Or they're like horribly legalistic, like reading your Bible, eating an apple or something, or they're like super progressively political. Like today is the day you save the world or whatever. And this one said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. And I was like, man, that's it. So like that's, and that's, that's wonder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where I am with us. Ladies and gentlemen, I tried. I, what can I say? I, I did my best to begin Sarah's the year reminding on me. note. Remember uh, a Groundhog Day? You want a prediction, sweetheart? I'll give you a prediction. It's going to be cold. It's going to be dark. And it's going to last you the rest of your life. Yes! <laughs> but these yes. little nuggets of wonder are, I think, I, I, I would say it again. I think it's a, a nice, I didn't know that I needed the little bit of yes, a 13 year old They are winning the thing Tetris. that keeps us afloat. Yes. And I, I could come back, Sarah, to the, uh, the, the, uh, subject we talked about a few episodes ago about that that book about awe and mm. sort of uh, the any kind of way that you can get in touch with awe and whether that be a big idea or that, that be nature whether that be some sort of great accomplishment or whether that be collective effervescence or of course um, worship you know all these things sort of coalesce in church as we mentioned but the wonder is not just a, a cheesy thing it really is kind of life the lifeblood of the human race and it's a, a very serious I think wonder is the most serious thing I do. I think things like wonder and humor and connection are the, I mean, I think those are the most serious things. It feels to me like um, discovering there's a room in your house that you didn't know was there before or like Mm. an island, like suddenly a new, it's like, how? first of all, how is this possible? Because I'm thinking back to my own Tetris days and I swear, I think I got up into like the 120s at the high and I'm like, I wasn't that far away. Like, Really? Really? I was only 30, like 20 to 30 lines away from crack. That's crazy. It just feels sort of unbelievable, like unbelievably wonderful. Like if, if Tetris can be beaten, suddenly anything's possible. Like what, what else do we not know about? What else are we just going to discover that sort of feels like, because of course Tetris just feels like it'll go on forever and just get harder and faster. But then, no, it, 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 there's an end to it. It can be beaten. What a, what a wonderful thing. I haven't watched the video. I briefly saw the, the article, um, but now i got to go watch it. I think as a – at least my faith tells me there's always hope. Like this, you never, yes. never close the door yeah. on hope because you can't close the door on God. Yeah. Um, though Life always surprises you. There yeah. is an interesting sort of uh, a Condon-esque uh, addendum to this. The New York Times ran an <clears throat> article on it, and of course they interviewed – some other players, and they said, it's never been done by a human before, said Vince Clementi, the president of the classic Tetris World Championship. There is such a thing. It's basically something that everyone thought was impossible until a couple of years ago. Awesome, right? Well, Gibson's achievement will unlock new frontiers for Tetris players to explore, said another championship player. Now that it's been done, there's kind of a new phase or a new challenge. When we all found out this past year that, oh, the crash is possible, you could do it at this level, then people started racing to be the first to do it. But now there's a whole new challenge, which is basically, instead of going through the crash, how long can you go beyond the crash? So we will figure out a new way to um, make sure that... uh, To keep score. (laughs) 
to keep score yeah. that yeah. the end has, the goalposts do need to be moved back just a little bit further and yeah. thank you yeah, very much like we can do yeah. awful yeah. all on our own <laughs> Um, well, speaking of which, uh, this is a major editorial, you know, beginning of the year always brings these large scale, um, you know, kind of taking the temperature of the culture and the society at large. And this was a state of the union. This was a state of the union from, uh, Karen Heller in the Washington post. And she wrote this, I think, uh, I can certainly, I guess, attest to it although the Tetris score was a little bit different. She says, fun is dead. Fun is dead. Sometime in recent history, possibly around 2004, Americans forgot to have fun. True fun. As though they'd misplaced it like a sock. Instead, fun evolved into work. Often emphatic, exhausting, scheduled, pigeonholed, hyped, forced, and performative. Right now, there are podcasts on happiness, a global study on joy, David Byrne from the Talking Heads offering reasons to be cheerful, workshops on staging a fun intervention. There's fun coaches now. Two things are abundantly clear. Fun is in serious trouble, and we are in desperate need of joy. Consider things that were long fun, but now overwhelm, exhaust, and annoy. She begins by talking about weddings. Weddings have morphed into (laughs) multi-stage stress extravaganzas while doubling as express paths to insolvency. Destination proposals for the whole family, destination bachelorette and bachelor blowouts, destination weddings in remote barns with limited lodging, something called a buddy moon. Bring the gang. And planners to help facilitate the same custom cocktailsiness of it all. Weddings. Wait, people become- are taking other people I'm, on their I'm honeymoons. Back. I'm, I'm there too. RJ. Wait, I'm what there is that? Too. Is that what a honeymoon you. is? You take your friends on your yeah, honeymoon. Yeah, this does. I'm not sure how real that is, but it does sound like a thing. She says that weddings have become many. <laughs> that things. might go hand in hand with a sex crisis, right? I was like, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> uh, all right, weddings. Ha- weddings have become many things, but fun is not one of them. Uh, Then she also talks about the beach. The beach is no longer a day at one, an oasis of rest and relaxation. Vacationers feel the need to plant a chair, make that eight at sunrise before transporting 220 pounds of stuff in a Buick-sized beached wagon, which is also a thing that used to not exist when a bucket, a book, and a towel were enough. And still, most people stare at their phones instead of the water. And I have seen that. I got to say, I have seen that. Um, For eons, she also talks about, you know... uh, baby announcements, stuff like that, and how these things have become kind of these major productions, and they don't seem to be quite as fun. Uh, for eons, early adulthood was considered an age of peak fun. Now, according to several studies, it's a protracted state of anxiety and depression. <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa Alvarez, a social media marketing manager who's 27, she wrote, I feel like I should be having more fun than I'm actually having. There are expectations of what I want people to believe my life is like rather than what my life is actually like. Well, because there's now a coach for everything, Alvarez has hired a party coach, Evan Cudworth. Uh, She took his $497 course this fall on how to pursue intentional fun. Cudworth meets with students biweekly, assigns podcasts, asks them to journal, and teaches them how to regulate their impulses and explore new outlets for fun. Cudworth, tellingly, is a former college prep coach. Mm. It oh. ends ends with the uh, with a uh, glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Catherine Price is the author of The Power of Fun: How to Feel Alive Again. She defines true fun as a confluence of connection, other people or nature, playfulness, aka lightheartedness, freedom, 
and flow, being fully mm. engaged, present, which is not as challenging as it sounds. You can have fun in any context. Playfulness is about an attitude, she says. There's obviously something a little disturbing about that society that needs fun coaches, I think. That's, yeah, I'll say. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of, there's also editorials, Sam wrote about it on Mockingbird about, uh, this says the internet is no longer fun. Again, I don't know if the internet's ever been fun, um, <laughs> but I think there's something to the performanceism of stuff that was previously completely present so tense. So simple. You know, yeah. And I'm, then you had to capture, everything has to be pictured, you know, all this stuff. I read an article recently, the average bachelorette party cost $20,000 in total. What? I mean, that's how much my wedding costs. Like, it's just like, that's why, I mean, that's wild to me. Like that people are putting this much money into something that they're generally speaking, coming home, like complaining and miserable about. And I think about how the fun gets sucked out of these events for the people that they are meant for, right? For the people who are like hosting their own birthday party or hosting their own wedding or or hosting their own sort of baby announcement thing, just like the stress of the perfectionism of the moment, it must just, I mean, I know I shouldn't say much. I know from personal experience, it just pulls the fun right out of it. Hmm. Um, I keep thinking about epiphany because, you know, we're at this new church. And so everything we experience here is brand new for us. And everybody's been like, Oh man, epiphany is like, I think they call it the biggest party of the year or something here. And I was like, what are they going to do? I mean, this is like St. B's is a, it's a weird church. Like it is like I walk into stuff regularly and I'm like, whoa, okay. This is like, I think the best description of it is like, they, they take it very seriously. Like the meaning of it very seriously, but like they gonna have fun too. Mm. And so like I walked in to this gym packed with people. Packed. I saw the pictures. I was, was like, what? crazy. What are you guys doing? And literally, here's what we did. Like they were doing, like there was three adults in like costumes, which is like immediate fun. Like they are being silly and they're, they've got a script about being the three Kings. And then our music director gets up and literally just leads us in like we three Kings, like, but he breaks the room up into sections. So it's like a competition for whoever can sing the loudest. I mean, there's barbecue. How does that get more fun? And then at the end, they were like, everybody go outside because everybody is real Christmas trees, saves them, brings them to St. B's. And they have this incredible, like, I'm talking like 30, 40 foot bonfire. Amazing. Those trees are also dry. They just like go up like. It's terrifying. (laughs) Like you're standing there and there are kids that have shovels that are like running in and trying to like (sighs) smash the like the embers and like there are kids that are finding like pieces of Christmas tree and like hurling it in as like grown men are trying to safely put the Christmas trees onto the, I mean, like it was, it was a little bit of mayhem in a lot of ways. It was so much fun. And I think there's something about that magical combination of like community and like letting go of the perfection of things and just being present to the meaning that like feels like magic every time it happens. And I will say it is magic. I keep experiencing at this church, which I'm so thankful for, but like, I'm not a fun person. I'm not good at fun. You've made that abundantly clear. I don't create fun. Well, you know, like I, like I remember when I took my college chaplaincy job, I literally said to my boss, I'm so worried. I'm not fun. You know, like I'm not a fun person. Hmm. And 
to get to walk into this like fun, I just was like, I mean, I was like, is this what epiphany is? This is incredible. Mm, mm. So that's yeah. beautiful, Sarah. RJ, what do you, what, what do you, you're, yeah, I do consider you to be, you're the one, you know, RJ's so fun. Getting more fireworks in the middle of the night. Let's talk and about like, it. And like, we're going to jump off a cliff. Jumping and like, off I cliffs. look like a Kennedy. Like, As RJ's so fun, you know? Mr. Body Surfing. I do, I, 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 do, I like, I do like fun. It made me think of, so, Dave, when you were talking, it made me think of, you know, when you're watching like older sitcoms or like older movies and you notice that everything looks a little bit shabbier? Like the 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 landscaping isn't as nice, and the paint is a little chipped, and like it, it, there's sort of things are nice but not too nice. And then you watch more recent movies or more recent sitcoms, especially, and like everything is perfect. perfect. Like to me, the example of that is uh, remember that show Scrubs, yeah, which I thought was when it first started, everyone was sort of like vaguely attractive, pretty down mm-hmm. to earth. It was pretty chill, mm-hmm. and then towards the end, like everyone looked perfect. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the ratcheting up of expectation in our culture. You know, like I remember we were living in Houston and at some point our front lawn was looking pretty shabby. And my my older boys were like, dad, our, why does our lawn look like Malcolm in the Middle? Can we please fix our, our lawn? You know? Those boys had a lot of fun in Malcolm in the Middle. They were so they great. It was so, yeah. so I, there's something about just the the perfectionism, the performative, the, the ratcheting up of expectation, which just sucks all the fun out of mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. you know, versus being able to just let your hair down a little bit. Like, do, do you have to have your house look perfect every time anyone comes over? Right. Or can you just like let it be a little bit? Right. Um. So that's one thought, you know, and then we're talking about, I also thought about church, Sarah, like, you know, I thought about, I I think I stole this from either Aaron Zimmerman or Stu Shelby, but this little tagline that we use at Holy Trinity, which everyone loves, which is, um, we take Jesus seriously, but not ourselves. Yeah. Which I think is just lovely. And I, I do wonder if maybe church could be by the grace of God, a space where people have a little bit more fun. Yeah, like, you know, like, like Christmas, Christmas Eve, we had two services. We had a late service, but then an early service at five o'clock, which was much more kid friendly. And there was just tons of kids there. I called them all up to the steps for like a homily, which was a complete disaster. There's one kid just yelling. I asked them about famous people that they knew. And yeah. one kid said, uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes. And another goes like, no, Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow. And just oh, screamed no. Joe Burrow at me the entire time. <laughs> it was oh, pretty, pretty hilarious. Okay, you win. And then we... They, they won. And then we gave them all, for the first time ever, um, candles. Like all the kids mm-hmm. had candles that they lit during Silent Night and people were nervous about it. But no lives were lost. No one right. was caught on fire. Right. And it was just fun. You know, right. it was chaos and it was fun. Yeah. And like next Wednesday, we're starting up our Wednesday night fellowship thing, which we did in the fall, which was so fun. We had like sing-alongs. We played bridge. Oh. And we're going to do a salsa dancing class next Wednesday. And, our, and, our, and a lady is going gonna, is gonna to cook paella. Like, you know, I would like, show up for that. Right? You know what I mean? Like, like that sounds fun. Yes, right? It yes. sounds fun. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I struggle with this too, honestly. Um, I'm way too obsessed with my job. Mm. I work mm. too hard. Um, I'm trying to create more space for fun. I do think alcohol is a thing, right? Because I think mm. people have a drink to have fun. Yeah. But then the more you drink, the more, the less you know, fun. the less fun. Yeah. So trying to figure that out. Um, yeah. But I, I, I agree. And uh, 
I, I do. Let me say the last thing I'll think I, I want to say is, and we talked about this before, is the Alan de Baton thing about how um, we Americans, you know, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are our God-given rights. And if we're not happy all the time, that there's something wrong with us. Mm. So there is a balance, right? But I do find when you let go of the need to be happy all the time and to be perfect all the time, it creates a little bit more room for fun. Mm. Absolutely. So... That's all I'll I mean, say. It, it just makes me think of like as a mom when I have those moments where I'm like, I've got to get the kitchen clean and I've got to get laundry done. I've got to do all these things. And it's like Annie comes in and she's like obsessed with like Katy Perry fireworks right now. And she'll Totes. come in and be and like request it on, you know, Alexa and then ask me to dance with her. And like that is so much more fun. Mm-hmm. And that is so much more important than like everything being reset for the next day. Yeah. Well, let's. I mean, I, I, a couple. I have a bunch of different things to say about this because I, I do think we could further. I don't think it's that novel of us to say fun is kind of a virtue, as though not in this yeah. work hard, play hard, which usually just connotes to sort of decadence or self indulgence. But fun yes. is different. Fun is what you talked about about epiphany. Um, <clears throat> Silliness, but I, I think you know, RJ, you've described, and the the article describes sort of quite brilliantly the acceleration that uh, I think is Hartmut Rosa, the soci- German sociologist, talks about that being the core condition of modernity. Is that everything's always accelerating? We have to beat the last year, we have to beat the score, we have to get you know, once we've beaten the score, we have to get to the next score, and once things can be perfect, then they have to be perfect, and that um, has a way of sque- squeezing out fun. And what's what is funny here is that. Christians have never been thought of as the fun ones, you know, we because of our focus on sort of righteousness. I think righteousness is generally speaking a way to ruin fun, you know, a, yeah. a focus on sort of doing things right. It has a way of just totally taking you out of the present moment. It creates a sort of a surveillance sense of who's having, you know, th- there's, there's a, I guess, an old idea that the Christians are the one making sure no one is having too much fun. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's really true anymore. And I, I think about it as a, as a former youth minister. I felt that our job as youth ministers was partly to talk about Jesus, but to do it in the context of fun and fun. silliness. Yes. I used yes. To, we used to do, I used to have a, a middle school boys <laughs> uh, youth group that we met in a room in a basement and we would do something called like uh, paper uh, volleyball. And we would, it essentially involved crinkling newspapers up into balls and just throwing them at each other for like... <laughs> 15 minutes until Amazing. someone started getting really mad or we'd play hide and seek. <laughs> we'd play hide and seek. I would, you know, we would do these. We had st- massive Nerf wars. I bought a bunch of Nerf guns and we just shoot each other with darts. Stupid for, yeah. things. We had a, the yeah. best birthday party I've, I've pulled off for my kids is we had the, my, one of my son's entire grade out to a huge Nerf battle in the middle of the woods. Yes. And totally. you know, this is like a, a town where people get very nervous about, Oh, you know, that looks like a gun, but, you know what? The, every single kid came. It was post-COVID. They were starved for fun. Everyone yeah. came. Every parent came and was like, this is fun. This is yeah. like, yes. we needed yes. this. And over Christmas, the most fun thing that we did um, is my mother, who is, uh, you know, uh, she, she, she's good at creating opportunities for fun. But I, I you know, uh, mom's listening now. And I fun, 
you know, I, I, she would joke that it doesn't always come naturally to her, shall we say. She's a, she's a serious mm-hmm. person. She yeah. got my seven-year-old a game called Poop Bingo. Maybe nice. you know about poop bingo. And Don't. he gets to read the animal. Everyone has a bingo card that has both animals and what their what their excrement looks like. And we played it with a, you know, 75-year-old and a seven-year-old. And like it was a whole room full of people. And it was oh. so fun. And it yeah. was sort of like the most memorable thing that happened. And then we played yeah. it again with my with the other set of grandparents a few nights later. And again, super fun. I think that's a really great thing. And and I I think that there's it's an expression of freedom. Yeah. It's connection. And if churches can be like the reason like my oldest son loves youth group, but right now he's got a basketball schedule that's not allowing him to go to youth group regularly. And it drives me crazy because you know what? Basketball for him, he loves it, but it's stressful. It's performative. Yeah. It's nothing but scorekeeping, and he's hard yeah. on himself. And youth group is pies in the face and a little Bible study. And to watch the kids come alive, like I, I'm almost about to cancel basketball season. I, I you know, I, I, I'm going to do everything I can to sort of balance these things. But it's so hard. It, but yeah, it's important. The youth ministers of the world need to be applauded for only that. I was at another kid's house who all he wanted for Christmas was Dude Perfect games. And if anyone knows about Dude Perfect, there's a Nickelodeon show and a YouTube channel. They were all former Young Life guys who were basically doing Is that true? Youth group. I did not know that, but that does not it's surprise me. nothing not but that. silliness and it's just like trick, yeah. you know, shots with water cans and stuff like that. Yes. The whole point is Our that kind of fun. That. So, yeah. anyway, yeah. that's what I have to say. I want to say one other thing because I, I do want to... You know, I feel like most people probably know this listening to us, but yes, church churches can be a lot of fun. I think part of the reason that church community can be fun, though, is because, like, we're honest about who we are and how much we need Jesus and how much we need joy. Because what struck me most about that Epiphany bonfire was that morning the church kicked off a Sunday school series, adult Sunday school series about um, basically just like mental health and mm. theology. Mm-hmm. And there were over a hundred people there. Wow. Wow. So like, I I think for me, like that, having that in one day at the same church was like kind of mind boggling. Oh, totally. Right. That we're going to be on. And then people in that room raised their hand and talked about their depression or talked about their addiction. And like, then that night we're all together and we're singing and we're eating and we're burning Christmas trees and we're watching our kids like faces like light up with, you know, with a reflection of, of a, a fire. I mean, it was just like that. You, I feel like you. That's genuinely holistic when people talk about yeah, that. Use that word, right. Yeah. yeah. So the whole person, RJ. Yeah. Dave, you were also just talking about, and I want to just make something that's implicit, explicit. You said Christians have not been known for their fun because if the whole point of your life is to uh, achieve righteousness, that's not going to be fun. The law is not right? fun. No. It's not. But if, you're, mm-hmm. if you think Christianity is achieving righteousness, it's going to destroy fun. If you think that Christianity is that God, through Jesus, has given you the gift of righteousness, which can never be taken away, and he calls you righteous, and he calls you loved no matter what, even though you're not, and you're playing with house money, that's fun. Mm -hmm. And it also creates the space 
for honesty, yeah. for freedom in every sense of the word, to tell the truth, to have fun, to carry yourself a little bit more lightly, to take and that what's and that's what it means to take Jesus seriously. To take Jesus seriously means to take him at his word that it is finished. Mm-hmm. That he has sat down at the right hand of God and it's over, game over. He won. And because he won, you won. <laughs> and that means you don't need to take yourself so seriously. And you can tell the truth. You don't have to achieve perfection. You don't have to beat last year. You know, Jesus already beat it all 2,000 years ago. Mm. And you can just like open up a little bit. Yeah. You know, and I think that you can sense churches where that's happening. Mm. Yeah. People want to be there. They don't feel like they have to be there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's where I want to be. Good grief. Yeah. The gospel, One of the fruits of the gospel, I forget if we put this in the little long gospel book that we did, but is uh, fun. Playfulness is what is certainly play is, is yeah. a fruit of the gospel. And it's one that as g- given the, you know, the diagnosis of the culture here, it's one that we would do well to take takes to actually take seriously in in a, in a from a gospel perspective and i i i do think like when i t- talk to college students going out into the world to find churches i always say you know if you can't find a church that explicitly preaches the grace of god find one where there's a gracious ethos or culture spirit. and yeah. what that really translates is there's going to be some spirit of uh, play some spirit of freedom and somehow whether it's whether it's sort of almost by accident what we're talking about here has worked its way into the DNA. And again, as Sarah says, it is in no way to say we don't get deeply ser- serious about the We're the place that talks about the heaviest stuff ever. Yeah, yeah. I just witnessed this ridiculous podcast. But it's, it is also the place where that allows for fun, play. This is the great category of the Holy Spirit, I think. I think also fun is an antidote to loneliness and, to and there's such a, yeah. such an epidemic. There was an amazing little opinion piece that David French wrote in the New York Times recently. Mm-hmm. His wife just got diagnosed with cancer, and um, but and he talked about their church and the support they've received. And but fun is the antidote to loneliness because if you can have fun with somebody, if you can laugh with somebody, then maybe you can cry with them too. Maybe you can, you know, it's it's why humor is so important in sermons, because if you can make someone, if you open that emotional door to laughter, you're also going to open the door to to uh, catharsis, yeah. right, to, to tears. And I think it all, it all goes together. So get people together, have fun with them, <laughs> and then just kind of see what happens, yeah. you know, and this uh, is, because people are dying for it. I mean, they're literally dying. It, it, it for, can cross yeah. the cross the, the, the line, I guess, into someone shouting at you to have more fun. I'm like, that's not fun. No, but no, no. what we're talking no, no. about is the allowance, the permission, and in fact, to, to view this as, a, as, as not only like a, 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 a good thing, but a necessary thing. And like a Try something a silly. Try something silly. Well, Sarah, you did talk about bonfires, so we're going to move into paganism, which I think is (laughs) (laughs) seamless. This is a pretty amazing article appeared in the Atlantic Monthly uh, called "The Return of the Pagans," written by a rabbi, Rabbi David Wolp. He says, although paganism is one of those catch-all words applied to widely disparate views, the worship of natural forces, which is paganism, is generally takes two forms the deification of nature and the deification of force. 
In the modern world, each ideological wing has claimed a piece of paganism as its own. On the left, there are the world worshippers who elevate nature to the summit of sanctity. On the right, you see the worship of force in the forms of wealth, political power, and tribal solidarity. In other words, the paganism of the left is a kind of pantheism. And the paganism of the right is a kind of idolatry. Hug a tree or hug a dollar bill, and the pagan in you shines through. The current worship of wealth is a pagan excrescence. I'm spending this year at Harvard, and it is not easy to find an undergraduate who isn't interested in, quote, finance. The poets want to go into finance. The history students are studying investment. Wealth is a cover for or a means to the ultimate object of worship in a pagan society, which is power. Then he moves into what we might call Tom Holland territory, uh, the, not Spider-Man. Oh, uh, Spider uh, Nietzsche criticized Judaism and Christianity for what he saw as their valorization of weakness, which he despised. The Greeks taught that the rich and powerful and beautiful were favored by the gods. Then along came Judaism, and after it, Christianity, arguing that widows and orphans and the poor were beloved by God. This was Judaism's spiritual revenge, Nietzsche argued, which spread through the world on Christian wings. The Nazis, mm. in championing blonde, blue-eyed Aryan Übermenschen, a term they took from Nietzsche, were reinvigorating a pagan ideal. He goes on to say, the worship of the body of beauty, which is another form of power, is a pagan inheritance. The monotheistic faiths did not disdain beauty, but it was not an ideal they extolled. Not only do biblical heroes rarely merit a physical description, but even traditionally heroic attributes are portrayed as worthless if they lack a spiritual foundation. In the Bible, if someone is physically imposing, that usually signals trouble. Samson is a bore who redeems himself at the last minute. Saul stands ahead above the crowd, but is an utter failure as a king. The English critic Matthew Arnold famously said that the Greeks believed in the holiness of beauty and the Hebrews believed in the beauty of holiness. Whoop. The veneration of physical beauty, the Instagramization of culture is pagan to its roots. He keeps going. He says, the virtue that falls furthest in the pagan pantheon of traits is humility. Humility. In the ancient Greek epics, humility is not even reckoned a virtue. He says this is, uh, if we don't have a God to simultaneously assure us of our centrality and of our smallness, we will exaggerate both. Rabbi Simcha Bunim, a Hasidic master of the 18th and 19th centuries, used to advise his disciples to carry two pieces of paper, one in each pocket. In one pocket was the phrase, for me, the world was created. In the other, I am but dust and ashes. In the balance between these two lies the genuine status of the human being. He concludes by saying monotheism at its best asserts that although human beings are elevated above the shackles of nature, we are still subordinate to something greater than ourselves. If we are nothing but animals, then the laws of the jungle inevitably apply. But if we are all children of the same God, all kin, all convinced that there is a spark of eternity in each person, but that none of us is superhuman, then maybe we can return to being human. Yes, yes, and yes. Oh my God, so, so good. good. What a great! I, it, it, when he talks about pagans, by the way, he does. He talks about Elon Musk, you know, going to the moon, having ten kids with three different women, and you know, kind of going to yeah. Burning Man and all that stuff. It's like yeah. he says, this is not. Like, That's why hidden. he's so happy. Yeah, <laughs> this is not hidden. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's having less fun than Elon Musk. <laughs> 
I'm always just repeatedly astonished by how different Christianity is and repeatedly astonished by how Roman we are culturally. Um, Pagan, I guess, is a word to use. But just the way, like, the beauty thing especially. Like, I... I know part of it is just because I'm female, right? But I know just enough, right, about sort of Roman religion and the way that women were treated and the way that women were portrayed, that beauty, and even men, was just this highest achievement. And I think about, you know, especially as the mother, mother of a daughter, the way the world is reflecting to her, hmm in the perfection that she's seeing. And, you know, I feel like this isn't a thing that you guys are, are aware of, but there's a lot of articles right now about girls, my daughter's age, going to Sephora and spending $200 on skincare. They're all using anti-aging stuff. You know, they're washing their faces every night and like putting on four different kinds of products, right? People start Botox in like their 20s now. Yeah, which is disturbing to me, but also to have like essentially a fourth grader um, feeling like they need to worry about their skin Mm. is deeply saddening, Mm. right? I mean, it just, it's nothing feels sadder to me than that when they should be having fun (laughs) you know i mean annie said to me one time and it always stayed with me she said i miss when i was four and i didn't have to worry about what i wore when i was four and what when i was four yeah and this one she was this was like two years ago she was like seven when she said this and acceleration acceleration i'm not a lady i mean you guys are sitting here and you're so nice to not say it out loud on the podcast (laughs) but i'm literally no makeup i have not brushed my teeth i have not taken my antidepressant i've got my pajamas on and my bathrobe and i i take children to school like this every morning so it's not like kim kardashian is in the front seat taking her to school do you know what i mean like she doesn't have this model of um, of, of physical perfection in front of her. Um, so I, 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 I think it just is astonishing to me. And also I just have to say, and also what a relief that, that I don't know how to say it better, that Christianity is a, is the club I'm in. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, you know what I yes. mean? Like I, I say that. And then at the same time, I think what wonderful, beautiful news that, you know, I could take my daughter to this crazy church event and she could run around with like, you know, a yellow crown on her head and um, yell at a fire and eat barbecue. Like, what a gift, you know, in the midst of a world that is raging at her, that she needs to think about her beauty, that she needs to worry about what she looks like, that she needs to buy different clothes. Like, what a gift. Yeah, I I would just, I want to say, this is yet another reason not only uh, to endorse uh, churches as uh, institutions, but uh, summer camps and uh, yeah. family camps. I want to shout out to Chip May and all my friends at Arcadia. We got to do a family camp. Somebody was telling me the other day about a family camp they did. And I was like, we got to do a camp, family camp. That's what we're doing. We're just buying. We're, it's, fun. it's fun. That's it's. Yeah. It, it's, you know, uh, setting off um, rockets and having little sailboat races and, and, you know, having just stupid games, you know, for tickets yeah. that you 
exchange for silly glasses. I mean, that's like what you're doing. And then you play pickleball. I mean, that's, that's it. And that's, uh, it's worth it. It's everyone leaves being like, this is the best week I've ever had. Yeah. The one thing I'd say that I would push back on, on this article is that I don't think left and right actually fall into those categories. Although there is a sort of a hippie pantheistic thing. I think basically everyone kind of worships money, uh, that is, and like, uh, I'm at a, I'm at this, you know, university town and, um, it's, you know, as, as the headlines have been showing this past couple of weeks, like academia is deeply left of center and, um, everyone I know wants to study finance. So it's not like it's, a they, they're, they're, they're into their, uh, uh, you know, act activism until it might threaten their job prospects. So I think that the, the yeah. paganism of, he, he talks about how it used to be the accrual of wealth was for the sake of society. And the, you know, the kind of, I don't know if that was ever been true, but, and that Americans have, it's turned into a purely narcissistic power trip. But I do see that aspect of, of kind of conquering my personal world as being a very different from the the gospel of divestment and service and sacrifice that you had, mm. at least in 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 theory, in name, uh, and inescapably on the the cross of Christ when when you had a more a slightly more sensibly Christian society. Sarah, what you said about our, how Roman our culture is, how pagan our culture is, I I, I totally hear what you're saying. I do also think, though, that because um, I, ta- I talked about this in my sermon a little bit this past Sunday, that people don't realize, and this is Tom Holland's whole thing, that how everything we value in our culture and actually want in our hearts, you know, in our hearts, love, mm-hmm. compassion, empathy, equality, humility, generosity, you know, um, care for the all those things which we hold up as being values. And I still do think a lot of people, even if they feel conflicted because they just want to go make a lot of money and be powerful, mm-hmm. if you really talk to them, they, w- they would say, no, those are the things which really matter. That right. all comes from Jesus. Yeah. It just straight up a hundred percent comes from Jesus. Yeah. And that- The outcast, the, if, the victim, the- what, all It wasn't, that is, I mean- it wasn't there before. It wasn't there before. Yeah. Like Christians sort of invented charity. Remember that article yeah. we read a few years ago? Yeah. Like there's a reason why every hospital is named for a denomination. Right. Or, or something the, or a that saint. That is the opposite saint. of yeah. the survival of the, of the fittest. Like that's the, it's the opposite. Yeah. You know, or, or, or what Emperor Julian the Apostate back in the third century. So like good. no wonder Christianity is growing because they take care of their own poor and ours as well. Like what, yeah. what you know— so they just don't realize that like everything we value and want for ourselves and our hearts comes from Jesus. And and I also think, um, you know, Jesus is um, he's to me not just the the best the best, if not only, proof for the existence of God. You know, he's the only one who actually says, I am God, not I speak for God, I can tell you about God, but I am God, and then seems to back it up in, you know. But he also may be the only proof we have that God is good. Because mm. if you take your cues for what God is like from nature or from people, you're going to end up with the Roman pagan gods mm-hmm. who don't 
give a those are the you know those are the you. ones created in our own image. <laughs> those right. are the ones, right. you know, and like right. nature. I've, hey, I've is... been watching Percy Jackson this week. It's it's, it's <laughs> amazing. I love it. But it's gotten great reviews. It's I'm really glad you good. enjoyed it. But yes, it is but, a good. That's an interesting. Like that would be an interesting thing to watch in light of this because it is like a a really fast course into like what well, are the value systems. And when gods come to Earth to have children with women, it's not a relationship. They rape them. Yeah. In, in 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 pagan mythology, they rape yeah. the women and then yeah. they have the demigods. It's not this yeah. loving relationship, yeah. you know, and nature is not kind. Mm. Yeah. You know, nature is like tornadoes and disease yeah. and pandemics. Yeah. And like, you know, you guys follow Instagram. Um, what's it called? Nature. Nature is metal. Uh-huh. Do you guys follow that Instagram I've page? It's like all this awful, like, you know, lions like carrying around gazelle heads and things yeah. like, just like the most brutal nature videos you can possibly imagine like that's nature yeah but that's not jesus yeah right so jesus shows us what god is like and it's what we want it's so counterintuitive but it speaks to like our deepest needs and desires and anything else you worship is going to kill you yeah and kill you not just kill you but kill the people you love just like <laughs> no in percy jackson and that, that <laughs> and by the way sarah if you watch percy jackson it's like all the kids are basically the christians and like the, the like the uh... adults are sort of all the sort of power hungry inflexible gods who are kind of conniving and the the kids who are, are the conscience and they're all sort of like half Half human, half. Anyway, it's 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 just a That's fun so show. They're half pagan. Half I do Christian. have to say, I yeah, because I've been raised in a Christian. I somehow did come across one of those videos, Sarah. I think it was a spoof video where they show what skincare was like, what was like today for fourth uh, graders, and they have these yeah. girls with all these products and like giving all yeah. of these tutorials, and it's super intense. Yeah. And then she's like, "When I was in fourth grade, this is what skincare was." And you like, she put masking tape on her nose, I and saw then like, this. And, and my <laughs> wife, I, I think, said like, she was like, "Yeah, I used to do the masking tape thing. Like that was." That was Where it. You pull your nose all the way up <laughs> yeah. to look like a pig and then you do wear it with your eyes. Yeah, that was it. And that was fun. I do want to say one more thing, and that is that the main difference between our Judeo-Christian existence and the existence that we're all experiencing culturally right now is that it's we're, the culture tells us that yes you can yes you can pursue money and yes you can pursue beauty but it's never going to be enough mm. and that's the mm. thing that will that our day as you said will kill us and the people that we love is that it's actually never going to be enough it's, di- never, it's, it's it becomes disordered as yeah, Sim- as 100%. Simeon is always saying it's like uh Simeon's all it's like Augustine it, it's not you know, bad. money, power, just, these, yeah. and, and in, in fact, you know, certainly beauty, they're not bad. They just disorder right. and become, they right. consume everything uh, that we, they're not ultimate. Right. Well, let's uh, end with a little thing about epiphany. You know, I, as the years go on and more and more people drift towards liturgical churches away from kind of non-liturgical ones, I, I, I think I, I, I find myself less interested in the, the kind of church year uh, that I grew up with. However, epiphany is, is interesting. And I think it's, um, uh, let's not, uh, let's, let's take it for what it's, what it's, what's good about it. Um, and this is a wonderful article that appeared in Mockingbird, written by Derek Sweatman, our friend who's a pastor in Atlanta. Wonderful Derek Sweatman. And it's an article called Why the Magi Matter. The Magi being what we're conventionally known as the sort of the three kings that you meet at Christmas. So he says, in a technical sense, epiphany refers to the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentile world, exemplified by the story of the Magi making their way to see the Christ child. And the Magi 
do not belong to the religious tradition of Mary and Joseph. They are outsiders, dressed in strange and foreign ideas about the universe, exotic and suspect. Yet, they hold a place in the story. They have a seat at the table. He gives us a little bit of real information here. He says, the Magi were an ancient subgroup of Persian priests serving in the cabinet of whoever the ruler of the day happened to be. The book of Daniel uh, names them as advisors to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who summoned them to interpret his dream. They had access, like a press pass, to various centers of power. Their affinity with astrology has made them famous, but their use of such a practice often left them shunned and even feared. The Roman historian Tacitus, who lived in 50 to 120 AD, called the Magi absurd. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, uh, around the same time, poked fun at the Magi's ongoing prediction of Emperor Claudius's death, pointing out that they had been calling for it every year, every month. <laughs> For some, the Magi's future telling ways were unsettling. Emperor Tiberius, who was 42 BC to 37 AD, had the Magi expelled from Rome, a move to eradicate the annoyances and fears that come with bad news. The Magi's worldview was not looked upon with great approval from within many of the ancient Jewish communities either. Later rabbinic writing warned that he who learns from a Magi is worthy of death. Magi were strange and off-centered people with weird views of how the universe worked. To see the stars as divine messengers was not something the Hebrew people involved themselves in. And yet, here we are. Swetman goes on to say this. The Magi lived with a particular view of reality. They gazed at the world through a certain window. In the story of Christmas, God knocks on their window. It's that simple and that scandalous. This knock was more of an invitation than a correction of thinking or a call to change what they believed to be true about the world. God simply tapped on their lens, saying in their own cosmic language, I want to show you something you wouldn't expect. I imagine a group of local psychics turning up in my church building on Easter saying, we got a strange reading in the cards and it brought us here. Oh. God knocks on windows and not just on church windows. At a time when churches can seem more like isolated clubs of like-minded affinity groups, Epiphany arrives as a disruption and a reminder of a different calling. How easily we forget that we were once Magi too. The church year is not random. Its seasons flow together. Before one trods downward on the Lenten road, we are handed the implications of the coming resurrection. We are clothed for the journey in the colors of love and invitation of good news for all people. In a wonderfully challenging way, the Magi are a reminder to let the people in that the gospel is for the weird, the suspicious, and the despised. Come on, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Great, 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 great piece. I mean, I don't really, I've never really connected that much with the kind of pastoral implications of the, of the Magi. Um, I certainly love the the T.S. Eliot poem um, about the journey of the Magi. But um, this, this to me spoke to me that we are all in some sense Magi. God comes and knocks on our window, on our lens. I love that. I love that. It also makes me think of Kat Von D. <laughs> totally. You know, yeah. like that was immediately because she's like, you know, into all the heebie-jeebie stuff. And like God knocked on that lady's window, you know, she was like, this isn't working. God knocked on her window. God probably knocked before she realized it wasn't working. And, you know, she ended up at her neighborhood church. I mean, what a good word for us to think about. Like, you know, I mean, clearly I'm not a new year's gal, but headed into the new year, I would say, 
if there's anything we could do better and think more generously about, it's that we were once Magi and that these people who are brave enough to cross the threshold into our churches, you know, uh, should be treated with so much welcome and joy, you know, because I, I think if we push that even further, it's like, because they bring gifts, mm. Right, totally. because these people bring gifts, um, and we don't know what those gifts are, but we know that God saw fit for them to be um, in our community. So mm. I love this. Mm. I, I I completely agree with what he's saying. I think another the way I've sometimes said is that it the to me the magic shows that how much God is willing to speak our language, mm. you know, to come to us in a way that we can hear Him. Um, and to, to speak to us in a way that we can um, encounter him and understand him. And of course, the most powerful example of that is, is God speaking human in the person of Jesus, you know, um, translating himself into flesh that we could actually like see what he's like and hear from his mouth and see what he does. Like we don't, that's the miracle of Christianity, right? We don't have to speculate about what God is like because he has shown us what he is like and he's shown us that he's good. And he's experienced everything that we experienced and entered into our humanity. So um, I just, I, yeah, it, it is amazing the lengths that the God of the universe goes to to get in touch with each and every one of us. Like I think about all the different conversion experiences, like my, my wife's conversion experience, you know, um, how God just spoke to her in a way that she needed to be spoken to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true for me as well. And and why why would I mean? What kind of God does that? Like, who the hell am I? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> also, but, like, have more rules, God. Do you know what I mean? Like, get yeah, more ma- rules. Make us work like, harder, God. Yeah. Like, are we supposed <laughs> like, to do something to, like, you know, make our way to you? And He's like, no, no, no. Just, just yeah. do your, do your Nancy Reagan thing, and I'll find you. But he, he doesn't. He doesn't come and, um, you know, correct them first of all, or like, that's like right. And I, I do. No. John Zoll said we did a, a Christmas episode of the Brother Saul, and he always said God. God had, you know one chance to make a first impression and, and he comes as a baby, you know, like that's a, yeah. totally. that's a, yes. who doesn't like a baby, you know, or I mean, I guess yeah. when yes. you're screaming, but maybe you don't like him. Well, but King like, Herod, King Herod, not, King not crazy. Do you have like an in, in, inexorable sort of pull to babies? And, and, you know, wh- wh- I sometimes wonder when you really drill down in the Christmas story, you get the, you, you do hear talk of the shepherds being very uncouth, very rough characters, yeah. smelly outcasts, you know, like, but the Magi were just as strange. They, but they happened to be, hey, they happened to be sort of people of privilege. They were, they were yeah. in the halls mm. of power, and yet equally, the rich and the poor, the Jews and the Gentiles, they shouldn't really yep. be there either. And and it's right. this yep. Christmas story that is, it's you know, back to the holdovers. It's the, <laughs> it's the despised, it's the 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 ones who are who really shouldn't be there that 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 seem to crowd around and it's a beautiful thing um it's, it's, oh day that's so good it's the ones who shouldn't be there that really crowd around it's like church every sunday <laughs> well i think we can stop there because that is a hopeful word in the middle of mm-hmm. new years that are the same as old years or for those of you who stuck with us after my initial commentary, thank you. <laughs> um, well, happy new year to everyone and uh, happy new year, especially the two of you again. Uh, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye, guys. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at 
Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.